One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Uh, hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. Uh, as always, I've got another very, very special guest on the show, uh, actually a friend of mine who uh, we've worked together sporadically in the past, but um, yeah, I will get into more details about how me and Mel met in, in a second, but just to give everyone an overview of who she is, uh, Mel, after or Melanie Mercer, should I say, after working in digital advertising, uh, she took one of her scamped ideas, which for people that are unfamiliar, scamp basically just means a very early sketch. Uh, and pledged to turn it into a game-changing company. After receiving investment from Venrex, uh, the venture capital firm behind companies like Just Eat, Not on the High Street and Charlotte Tilbury, and after receiving additional support from the likes of Seb, B- Seb Bishop, the CEO of Goop, or ex-CEO of Goop, should I say, Gwyneth Paltrow's cult lifestyle brand and former international CEO of Red, as well as uh, Richard Fern, an investor in Seedcamp, Techstars and Playmob, Mel and co-founder Laura grew the app to over 120,000 downloads and 20,000 monthly active users, showing her capacity to take an idea from paper and turn it into reality. So, uh, as in the case of all tech companies, initial success doesn't always guarantee a company's success down the line, and unfortunately, uh, the app never reached a tipping point to make it into the upper echelons of social media greatness. Uh, So, with increased pressure from other huge players dominating the space, Nata unfortunately closed at the start of this year. Uh, But undeterred, Mel is already on a mission to build her next uh, no-doubt successful company, and she joins us here today to share her journey and some of the lessons she's learned along the way. So, Mel, thank you for being on the show. Thank and, you for yeah, having me. <laughs> look, <laughs> see what lessons we can uncover. Um, right. So I think uh, for people who are listening to this episode, what I would love... So Mel is in the tech space and um, there's a, a lot to the tech space, getting an idea off the ground and, t- and, and making it into something. So I thought the first part of uh, the interview would basically just be guiding people through the process that you yourself went through. And maybe could you just talk into... Um, you know, how Natter actually came about and, and how old you were at that time. Yeah, so I graduated from the School of Communication Arts um, and I was studying copywriting at the time, but the school's really weird where they kind of teach you to be an ideapreneur. So to create a concept, turn that into an idea and then kind of um, like push it forward. So from this point, after graduating, we got a placement at Gray. Um, Grey Possible is an agency in London. Um, And from here, I went back to actually visit my friends back in Canada. Um, Over this time, uh, I was hanging out with a few people. Um, Actually, hold on, back up a second. Went to visit my friends back in Canada, came back to London, and I realized I was getting deported. So, (laughs) funnily enough, at the border, um, they take my passport and they're like, hold on a second you don't have a proper visa to be in the country. And 
long story short, before I studied at the School of Communication Arts, I was actually studying at a fashion school called the Studio Marangani, and they gave me a four-year visa to get my master's there. Um, I ended up switching schools at the last minute, and this new school wouldn't offer me a visa just because it's so small. So I thought, okay, I got into the program, I could either stay here and stay in the country illegally, or I can go back to Canada and do God knows what. So I thought, okay, I'm going to risk it. Stayed in the country, graduated, got this sweet job, but... Now it's kind of biting me in the ass. So anyways, I'm in Heathrow Airport and I call my mom and I'm like, okay, like, what do I do? And she's like, honey, like, I trust you. Just, you know, like, do what you think's right. And I'm like, this is the worst advice ever, uh, <laughs> given the situation I'm in. So anyways, they take me to this retainment center. Basically, uh, it's like a fancy word for jail. There's like barbed wire fences around the building. And I get sent back home on a plane to Canada the next day. Um, while in Canada, I don't know how severe this is until I receive a 10-year ban on the UK as a country. So I'm like, okay, uh, I might have really messed up here. And while I'm appealing this, I'm actually sitting around with a few friends um, in Canada on the sofa. And my friend Steve uh, is asking me how to respond to much of these Tinder messages. So he's talking to a few girls, and because my background's in copywriting, I'm, you know, like, giving him a couple lines, and my friend Jesse is doing the same. And after a few hours, we just kind of realize, like, why isn't there an app for this? Like, it's a digital problem. There should be a digital solution. So from here, I thought, like, if I can get back to London, I have a pretty good network from the school that I went to to make something happen. And, like, against all odds, I got in, got an entrepreneur visa, and then worked another six months at Gray and then quit uh, to make this happen. Um, wow. So that is something <laughs> I didn't know, which is, so you had quite a journey even to get to that moment. Yeah, yeah, sorry. It's a bit of like a long-winded answer, but had I not been deported, I doubt Nader would have ever existed. Wow, that's amazing. So at this point in time, you are, uh, I'm sorry to reiterate age, but I just think it's important for people to understand, you know, that you can do this at, a, at an early age. Yeah, so I um, incorporated Natter when I was 23, yep. and um, I'm 26 now. So did it for a good three years. And and so from that moment when you've got this idea, we want, and just to reiterate, it's basically people who are trying to hook up with other people via text, and you, or you, go on, you, you can explain this way better than yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, so like... The idea was started, I guess, with like Tinder, basically my male friend Steve trying to hook up with like girls and giving good openers and so on and so forth. Um, but it's kind of anytime you want to crowdsource a clever response or you care enough to put a little extra effort into a message. So Seb, the chairman of our company, actually loved the concept, um, not just for dating, but it was actually really sad when I met Seb, his mother passed away. And I had to put together a text that kind of said, like, I'm so sorry for your loss, but are you still going to help me with Natter? And being a copywriter, I'm kind of fine doing, like, the witty stuff. But when it came to writing quite a serious message, I actually got people to help me craft this text. So it's like Natter's core form, yes, is dating, but there's still kind of these other web strands that it can go off on. So you discover that this is a useful thing basically off the back of you having several experiences where you were crowdsourcing text response. Correct, uh, so yeah. dating or in this case with Seb. Um, so at this point, you've got this idea, you want to go to, you want to actually make it a, a thing, uh, you need money. But so just before we even get to the idea of going to an investor, um, in the tech space, you've got 
uh, venture capital or you have what's known as bootstrapping, which is basically getting an idea off the ground with no money at all. Um, yeah, in or between very little. there. In between that's kind of like angel investors as well. Um, and so what made you decide that you were going to go down the VC route? Yeah, so after we left Gray, my co-founder and I, she was actually my creative partner at Gray, um, we spent two months building a pitch deck. And from that pitch deck, it was when we ended up meeting Seb. And we know Seb because he was the governor of the school that I legally stayed in the country for. Um, when I, and then once I met Seb, he was the one that kind of said, listen, we should try approach some VCs. This is a great idea. Let's push it forward. So I was a little bit lost in the space until um, I actually met him at that point. Before then, we were more so looking at like the angel slash like family and friends route. Right. So uh, let's take, regardless of whether you end up going to get venture capital, it's obviously good to get a pitch deck down just to be able to communicate what your idea is and to know in your own head, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, that's the first thing I've done with the second company as well. It's like if you can't put a pitch deck together, like you genuinely don't know the product well enough. Yeah. Um, if you can't, you know, kind of say it in a sentence, again, you've got to keep refining, refining, refining. Like we've literally spent two months showing that pitch deck to everybody and just making changes based off that. And it, to be honest, it was a good pitch deck. <laughs> yeah. We raised um, quite a bit of money just off of that. Can you disclose what, um, how, how much you've... Yeah, so with that just being a deck and no technical talent on board, um, no product, no prototype, anything, we raised um, £200,000 just for putting a good idea on paper. So just for people who are maybe thinking of starting their own company themselves and they're, they're debating whether to take uh, or to try and get venture capital versus bootstrapping, I've just very uh, crudely here laid out some kind of positives and negatives, so I'll just reel these off. So a positive uh, with regards to getting funding maybe to outgrow your competition, to bring on essential team members, to leverage the network of investors and to grow faster. Uh, agree with that? I do. Do can you see them all again? Sure. To outgrow competition, to bring on essential team members, to leverage the network of investors, and to grow faster. Yeah, I would say um, lots of people fall into the trap of being really concerned about their competition, though. So I was reading this book by Adam Grant called The Originals, and it talks about settlers and pioneers. And Natter was kind of a pioneer, as in it didn't really exist before we were first to market. And pioneers actually have a lower success rate than settlers do. So, for instance, Nintendo, the brand was actually a settler. There was a company in, I think it was Japan, that came out with a similar device. So not necessarily to focus so much on competition, just kind of focus on making your product the best, obviously being aware of like what's in the market. Um, so the, my uh, logic with that is, say, for example, you've got Uber or and, and they've got competitors and they, they basically look for a ton of money in order to try and dominate a, a space. But obviously, with regards to all of the stuff we're going to talk about today, it comes down to a, a company by company kind of basis, doesn't it? I, yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And uh, negatives for VC funding, basically, you be- instantly, as soon as you take on money, you become answerable to investors. Uh, you have to provide updates. Uh, it becomes much more money-driven. So the idea of obviously taking on money is that it's going to become profitable and that there'll be a return for your investment. Um, you lose equity and you lose an element of control or to some degree. Yeah, you gain a lot of things. But um, I guess if we're looking at the negatives, then 
then yeah. I mean, like, there's two different types of people you can raise money from. Um, they call it dumb money or smart money. And smart money are kind of like people that are going to help you um, throughout the business. You can email, ask them questions, you can leverage their network. Or dumb money is kind of taking money from any chat that's just willing to throw it at you. So there's a there's a within uh, you know some VCs will say that they want to give money, but they don't want to be heavily involved in a product. Yet they would still be smart investors, would you say, or you know be able to give you a steer. I guess depends how good your network is already. So yeah. for me at this point, I feel like since I've done it once before, I kind of know the drill. But if I didn't have the team that I had backing me with Natter and kind of helping me along the way, I don't think we would have come as far as we did. Okay. Um, so just to dig into that ever so slightly, when you say the drill, what do you mean by that? So for people listening, when you say you know the drill, what, is, what are some of the insights there? <laughs> yeah. Um, everybody thinks when you start a company that it's uh, just really fun from day one. But the amount of paperwork that you need to do before you kind of get to the fun stuff is part of that drill. So, again, like a rough outline from step one is you come up with an idea in your head, right? You pitch it to a few friends um, they like it. You start to kind of put it into a pitch, pitch deck. From there, um, I came to London again, ran it past a few more people in my network, realized, okay, this is a viable product, did a bit of market research, realized there's a gap in the market. Um, and again, to like highlight on this point, the amount of research that you'll do is insane. Like I have documents, um, like that's pretty much what I do all day right now. And then from that point, you got to incorporate. Um, finding a good lawyer for us was quite important. Um, you have to do the accounting. You have to do find office space. You have to then build your team. So you basically, like, finding a really good developer is like dating. <laughs> Where you can't come off desperate. You have to seem desirable. It's like, what's in it for them? What do you bring to the table? And there's this whole game that you kind of have to play. And for me, like, that was the key moving forward was finding a really good dev because last time, um, it bit us in the butt, kind of outsourcing uh, tech talent in the beginning. Well, it's one of the things that they try almost every person when they talk about who they stick money behind is they look for a technical co-founder of some sort, right? Yeah, I guess like I, th I think they're throwing around like co-founder loosely because for me, um, I'm actually not going to have a technical co-founder with the new company, but I'm going to have a technical developer who's in-house who will be getting equity for being involved. Um, I guess nobody really knows, but long story short, with Natter, my co-founder ended up leaving. And I'm not just going to, I guess, like throw that title out to anybody just because they're technical. Of course, yeah. All right, so just moving into the... We've talked a lot about pitch decks and obviously there's a lot of research that goes before you even get to that stage and test and see if it's viable. Um, but just to cover some of the broad bases, if I throw a few key terms at you for what those pages in a pitch deck might be, could you just talk into them ever so slightly? Yeah, sure. So if we start with vision and value proposition. Yeah, I guess this is kind of like your overall mission. Um and what you're trying to kind of deliver to the customer, what's going to be like the value exchange for them. Um, this should be, again, like how you explain your app in one sentence. The problem? Uh, most people say, actually, this is an interesting one. So 
I've been debating lately. Most people say you need to create um, a company, you should be solving a problem. To be fair, I believed this until I started thinking about Loop. And I was like, I don't think I'm necessarily solving a problem. I'm just making life a lot more convenient. And if I think about Snapchat, when Snapchat incorporated, what problem were they solving? Like now you can kind of reverse engineer it backwards and they kind of, um, they fill kind of a gap. But yeah, so I'm kind of like on the fence with that one. Uh, target market, uh, target market, an opportunity. Uh, yeah, so most investors are kind of looking to see how big the opportunity is. So for Natter, we actually looked at two different markets. We looked at the dating market, and we looked at kind of like the mobile texting market. Um, the benefit with Natter was is there's so many social apps coming out, whether it was. Um, uh, things from Snapchat to Happen to Tinder to Bumble, and nobody was trying to solve the um, the whole like crowdsourcing cleverness thing. So the way I see dating apps work, and this is actually what helped us raise a ton of funding, was giving my Tinder account to my male investors and saying, these are what guys are saying and trying to message me with. So basically you get pulled, pulled from a pool of, let's say, 50,000 people in London, that's, you know, within your demographic, let's say 25 to 30. And then you get pulled into a smaller pool of your matches, which might be 100. And now you're not going to talk to all 100 people, but it's a chat game. So whoever is the best chat, you're probably going to kind of carry forward. You might pull, you know, two or three to them to your WhatsApp group and maybe meet one over the weekend. So it's like <laughs> this funnel. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody was capitalizing on it but Natter. Um, so yeah. just out of curiosity with regards to audiences and finding figures when you're pitching to investors, how do you find those numbers? Again, going back to that whole research thing, like with Natter, I used to live in a studio flat and my walls were covered from floor to ceiling with diagrams and screen designs. And um, there's a really good book by... Eric Rees called The Lean Startup and he has this philosophy build, measure, learn and you just constantly do that over and over again with everything so not just with screen designs but with decks and pitches and and everything Okay, um, the solution Yeah, well you would hope your app would be that if, if again like Natter, the problem was um you know, not everybody could come up with a clever response. The solution was to crowdsource it. Um, and so this slide in the deck, is it is it a visual depiction of the, the actual app itself or is it just a simple explanation? So for Nada, we did both. Um, funnily enough, one of the most powerful things in my deck for Nada was actually a clip from Made in Chelsea. So we kind of thought, when I, whenever I make a pitch deck, I think like, how can I make this the most persuasive thing um, for the investor to make them really grasp the concept? And I was randomly watching like Made in Chelsea reruns and I realized that um, a lot of the guys, they were struggling over a text message on what to say. And it just painted the problem so perfectly and it kind of showed this wasn't just an issue for kind of like a nerdy guy in his basement. This is a problem that everybody has. Um, so your, your revenue model or business model? Yes. Again, interesting for a social app. Um, you'll get investors that say, like, you need to have a business model. It needs to be really clear. The economies of scale um, need to make sense. Meaning if you're buying a user for a pound, you should be getting two pounds back. 
Um, and then you get the other investors that understand social a bit more and kind of say, like, once you scale it, that's kind of when you think about monetization. So with Natter, we started monetizing a year and a half into the product and we realized, like, we have some really good writers on board, some who write for MTV and House of Cards. And if people are willing to pay for a response, you know, we can keep a little bit ourselves, pay the writers, and, like, it just might work. So do you think that you couldn't have come up with that at the in the you know the the initial pitch deck from the from the very beginning did it require a year and a half to grow the audience to discover that business model kind of um in the beginning i guess it was my first kick at the can as well right and um monetization wasn't kind of the focus it was more so like get ridiculous growth um and then after a year and a half, we realized, okay, we're growing, but our growth rate was about 14% month on month. And we realized, okay, we need to be better than that. So then we went to the drawing board and we thought, okay, why don't we leverage these writers that we have? Um, and about 1% of our user base was paying, which isn't terrible. I know it sounds like such a low number to people, but 2% is a really good number. So we were kind of, sort of getting it... Um, kind of tweaking it, seeing what's working, what's not. Um, and it sounds really simple, but like it sounds simple to a user. Basically, you go online, you post a screenshot, you pick a writer, and you wait for the response. But on the back end, we have to send these notifications. If this guy's not going to respond, we have to kick it to another guy. There's like this wheel that rotates on like who gets them at each time of the day versus um, US timing and UK timing. There's all this stuff that goes on. So it's on. basically very, very complex behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how, with regards to traction, validation and roadmap, so how do you communicate that in your, your pitch deck? Yeah, um, the best tool we had for that was Mixpanel. And um, the most common metrics asked for are kind of your daily active users, weekly active users, and monthly active users. And a really good number, they say, is if you have, let's say, 30,000 monthly actives, they like to see 10,000 daily actives for social, which, to be honest, is extremely high. <laughs> so they're looking for a third of your users. Yeah, they're looking for, like, a unicorn right. for social. Of course. Um Social's definitely the hardest one to crack. Like you don't need that kind of those kind of figures if you're doing games or if you're doing a utility. But because we're lumped in the same ballpark as Snapchat and Facebook, it'd be. It, I imagine that those numbers are extremely difficult to get purely on the basis that people are spending so much of the excess time on those big apps already that to own a third of anyone's time or no, uh, sorry, to have a third of your audience come back to use your app repeatedly is just extremely high. Yeah, because it's almost, again, like most of the traffic, about 85% of all posts were related to dating. Um, we broke down as well. We could tell which uh, screenshot it was from. So Bumble was actually one of the most popular screenshots and then Happen and Tinder. Um, and yeah, again, it's all about the funnel. Like you're not going to ask for help on every message. But the ones that you do, like, we'd be happy seeing a user, you know, three times a week. Like, I thought that was a good number. Um, and so your uh, slide seven, marketing and sales strategy. Yeah, we um, did a lot of learning in the marketing area. Um, 
But I guess we're talking more about like... Yeah, I, I the... guess it, what the pitch deck is that you put in front of investors to begin with. Yeah, for marketing, it was, again, pretty general. Um, we knew we were going to do some testing with universities. And then we knew um, we knew the idea would get press just because it's a little controversial. Um, so we kind of, yeah, had one slide on like a rough assumption on how we were going to do this kind of university stuff. Um, do some, you know, Facebook and Instagram ads, get some press, but not in any level of detail. It was kind of like the second and third pitch decks where we really nailed down, like, these are the ads that work for us. This is our cost per acquisition. Um, the first one, honestly, was like a one-pager, very rough. Um, your team? So, uh, yeah. yeah, the team page tends to be fairly important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With this one, we definitely leveraged our investors in SEB. Um, there's, I guess, this philosophy, if you can surround yourself with awesome people, you almost by default are awesome. Um, and SEB has an amazing track record in the tech space. Uh, he sold e-spotting back in the day. He kind of brought like the pay-per-click model um, over to Europe. And Venrex, again, they have a really good track record as well and have invested in some amazing brands. So by having them on our page, kind of saying, you know, chairman, investor and advisor, and then same with Richard Fern, um, we just... But I suppose these come later on down the line, right? So your initial uh, pitch deck, was it literally just a bio of you guys? Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, again, we actually, you know what we did do for our initial pitch deck? We took all of the faces of everybody that helped us craft that pitch deck and who we went to see. So we went to see some other VCs that were just friends of mine and um, my dean at my school, um, the School of Communication Arts. Um, funnily enough, state, some people from the app state that we went to see, we kind of put all the faces of like who's helped us kind of get to this point. Because at this point, yeah, we didn't. So you were Have looking to leverage the credibility of them at that point in time. Yeah, exactly. Um, financials? Yeah, we, we didn't yeah. have this in our pitch deck. Yeah, and uh, competition. So I know that this is a fairly, uh, it's, it tends to, I'm not sure the name of it, but it's like a cross formation, isn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, to be honest, I can't think of the name as well either, but I know what you're saying. Um, well, the, yes. The basis of that is basically just a cross where you you bunch the different uh, competitors into certain subcategories, right? Yeah, you put it on like a little, um, I don't know why it's slipping behind, almost like a little graph, but you're always supposed to be in the top right corner. And um, yeah, we labeled the axis kind of, uh, what did we base it on? Sorry, it's going no, back. I, I'm, I'm sure it was probably like a dating purely dating apps i'm guessing was one section um what did we do we did like personalized in general on the axis and then um utility and entertainment on the other axis and lots of the competition that we threw in there was kind of dating apps and then we had other apps like secret which doesn't exist now but but we shared the feature of being anonymous same with whisper um nano is a bit unique because like as weird as it is to say, we genuinely didn't have any competition. So we just had to kind of, again, like benchmark off of apps that share a feature or two that we we had. Did people in the early days uh, highlight that as a red flag, that you didn't have competition? No. I think that was one of the things that made it really easy for us to get funding. 
I don't want to say really easy. It wasn't like a walk in yeah. the park, but um, basically capitalizing on the fact that like this is how big the opportunity could be, and nobody's doing it. And so, uh, as a final slide in your deck, did you have you know what investment you were looking for and and what you would use that money for? Um, we didn't have the specific number in the deck. Uh, from the feedback that I've got, they say you don't circulate that. Um, we had a bit, yes, on like what we would use the funds for. So it would be hiring, development, and kind of like what percentage is going towards what. So um, as a whole, with regards to pitch decks, obviously there's actually tons of examples online. So if you're typing in uh, investment pitch deck, you'll be able to get some from really well-known founders uh, or really well-known companies, sorry. However, um, I know myself, I've put one together in the past. So if you sign up to my mailing list on on, uh, my website this month, I'll give away like a pitch deck for free and I'm sure Mel will, uh, you know, she'll have something to contribute there, I've no doubt. But so uh, moving on just with regards to actually getting in front of founders in the first place. So you've created this pitch deck and uh, you want to get in front of founders. How are you finding them? What are those conversations like? What are some kind of tips, fors and against when you're meeting these people? So we're talking founders, not investors here, yeah? Uh, Sorry, uh, in front of investors, my my apologies. Okay. Um, Yeah, so the best way that we did it was through recommendation. And again, it kind of all goes back to that school that I went to, the School of Communication Arts. Um, I guess probably is worth explaining how that school is run. There's 36 students and there's about 500 mentors. And a good chunk of those mentors um, were investors and I already had previously built a relationship with them. Um, um, so this was called... And this is in the UK? Yeah, the the School of Communication Arts. It's technically an advertising school, but they did put a lot of emphasis on, like... I guess they call it ideapreneur, but essentially being an entrepreneur. Um, And I kind of leveraged my network from that. And from there, I would go to events that these people would bring me to. Um, London is a very tricky city for events because I kind of call it like there's tier one and then there's tier two, where tier two is kind of these guys that go to every single meetup possible. And tier one is kind of like you go to the select few that are really worth attending but otherwise you're kind of wasting your time like going around the city doing nothing um we went to a few events where it was just kind of like the smell of desperation in the room somebody actually offered me to build my um they call it a mvp which stands for like minimum viable product it's kind of the the first product you kick out the door for 50 percent of the company like are you crazy um So I guess, yeah, to answer your question, like, how did I meet investors and how I got in front of them? I leveraged who I knew in my network and kind of what I knew about them. And is there anything to say, you know, if you're building a social application that you should be looking for an investor who who knows social or are you just not in a position to make those kind of calls when you're when you're looking for money? I think that's where you start. So you kind of go through who's invested in something similar. Do they understand? Like, The benefit of doing that is they have realistic expectations for traction and growth, and they understand some of the hurdles that you're going to overcome. And you kind of get to learn from the previous companies that they've invested in, and they'll tell you, like, okay, this was worth it for them and this wasn't. So, yeah, i definitely start there, but I wouldn't say it has to be um, a be-all, end-all. 
I really appreciate that. Just for people listening again, I'm going to share some of what I've a little bit of research did beforehand, some of the the pros to a team and some of the red flags. And maybe if you want to talk into any of these, feel free. So things that uh, 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 investors are looking for is do the founding team have a track record? Do they have a good network? Uh, is the team fast moving? Do they have technical proficiency? Do they complement the market? Have they worked together before? Are they good communicators? And do they have a reason to tackle this challenge? Uh, agree with that? Yeah. And red flags would be uh, no technical co-founder, which you've already spoke about briefly. It can be done, as Mel has proved. Uh, non-equal equity split. Um, I would disagree on this point. Um, even if you look at Facebook, it wasn't an equal equity split, right? Um, and with my last company, it was, and that kind of went tits up. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, uh, yeah. all right, fair yeah, enough. <laughs> I, I would question that one, like, yeah. It, so it really w- w- when you go into, I guess the, the the logic there is if you're sitting in front of an investor and you're, there's two of you and you're one of them saying, I'm taking 70 and the other one's taking 30, there's a question there as to... Uh, you know, is that person with 30% going to be as motivated as the one with 70, for example? Yeah, I could definitely see how that plays into it. But um, I'd say if you're getting a lot less equity, actually, my new company, one of my co-founders is strictly injecting cash. So they're getting a very different percentage than what I'm getting. Um, I think it, it kind of plays into the unique scenarios. But I guess like as a general rule of thumb, then yeah. Um the, uh, another red flag would be that you don't want to work full time on the project. Probably yes, a no brainer. <laughs> yeah, um, and that you're outsourcing engineering. Uh, yeah, that's that again. I learned that one firsthand. Uh, so let's just talk about when you're actually in front of the investors. What are those conversations like? Some of the do's and don'ts. What uh, obviously you will have met lots of investors and you would have learned through the process of, of meeting them. What are some of the things that you've learned in terms of what are the best ways to communicate with investors? I would say the worst thing you could do is go online and like research what investors like. Like they will like smell that out right away. Um, it's literally like the best thing you could do. It's going to sound so cliche, but like be yourself because again, even for me, like I kind of had like a love hate relationship with investors. I got on so good with some and some I'm like, okay, I don't even want their money. And it helps going forward because, again, with the relationship that I built with my guys is, like, I wouldn't have traded it for the world. But had I gone in and pretended, like, I was really stiff and blah, 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 it would have never worked. I would say, going in, the best thing you can do is, like, know your product. Um, Like, first and foremost, if you're smart, you have a good idea about the market. Um... If you're informed, you kind of have nothing to worry about. So what was some of the... I'm guessing you must have been stumped at some point. What some questions that people threw at you, kind of curveballs? I'm trying to think back now. Like, There's definitely times where I've said I don't know. Um, but I've never tried to bullshit my way through something. Um, I would say, if anything, there's people that have been like, oh, well, have you seen this article or this brand and you know it's something that was really topical and I've been like no I haven't but you know I'll pick up um, that paper today um yeah obviously it's not like the best if it's super up my alley and I'm like shit I should have read that this morning but in the same breath like I think they prefer me to be honest than 
try to bluff, like, oh, yeah, I read that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've just said not to look into what invest- investors look for, but I'm going to reel off a few things that they may look for yeah. <laughs> from my Google search that I did prior to this interview. <laughs> so I apologise now for all the investors who are pulling their hair out going, God's sake, this is not, not the answer. <laughs> but so some of the things is they may be looking for market size, so the total available market, i.e. is it a big enough market that there's a return on investment for, for, their, for, their, for their money, uh, a product differentiation of some sort, uh, sector volatility, is it something that is you know constantly going up and down and there's no you can't tell where it's going to go, uh, traction, so are you going to be able to get traction in this market, are the competitors that are going to make it particularly difficult for you to get traction, any trends? So, for example, freelancing is a is a big trend. People are more and more people are becoming freelancers. Is there something that can be leveraged there, or any other trend, for example? Uh, intellectual property. It, do either the founders or the product itself uh, have some form of of uh, monopoly on on intellectual property of some sort? That might be, as I say, it might be the product has intellectual property rights, or it might be that the founder specifically has knowledge in an area that very, very few other people do. Um, Time to market. So, so many products could have been successful but were ill-timed, either too late or too soon. Uh, Path to profitability. Can you see that this is going to grow and then make money? Uh, A a very uh, good marketing strategy. So, how are you actually going to get this out in the public domain? What's your PR? What's your online and social and all the rest of it? And why you specifically? So why are you passionate about this problem? Agreed with those? Yep. Wicked. So finally, just before uh, we talk about kind of Natter and some of the hurdles that you had to face, I just wanted to talk about your due diligence. So you've already said that you this, there were some investors you didn't like. And so did you ever go and ask, that, you know, other people that it had been invested, that that investor had invested in their company and asked them what the investor was like or um kind of there was this one i guess it was kind of like an incubator program where you go in and they take a little percentage to give you office space and um, basically kind of like consulting and again i guess this was an area where we were a bit naive because laura and i were like oh wow this is such a nice space like we have all these smart people around us and then when i told venrex about the concept they basically said like that's a massive ripoff you they want five percent for you to work out of their office for six months if you kind of break down what that would be in cash like he's like you're paying like a grand a day to be or not a day a grand a month um to be there he's like it's just not worth it um so then (laughs) funnily enough I told them like you know what we're going to like reconsider our option I'm probably not going to accept it and these guys ended up lying to me saying that we know Venrax and they're reconsidering their position internally and I'm like what does that even mean so I phoned up Tom and I was like you're reconsidering your position and he's like I have no idea what Baz is talking about. And it was just like this investor like blatantly lied to me. And like from there, it was like, I'm never going to speak to you again. It was just like a really dirty move. Um, And then, yeah, like there's other investors that um, almost just try to like pull the wool over your eyes, think that like they're in the position of power. And to be fair, our first raise, we actually had to turn down money um, because we didn't want to dilute ourselves more. 
yeah, we didn't want to dilute ourselves more. But so. So, some people have the philosophy that you want to take more than's required, right? Yeah, I guess like when we took in the 200, um, we could have done one of two things. We could have told everybody, you know what, there's so much interest, we're going to have to raise the price. And it didn't necessarily sit right with me to, to change that for everybody, just to take in an extra 50 grand. Um, so instead we turned down the cash and like pushed on and forward. So There we go. Yeah. Um Mel, one of the things that I've always kind of appreciated about you is just you're a straight shooter and you're very, very honest. And uh, I've got 10 questions roughly for you about your, your journey with Natter. And, uh, yeah, see how we get on with them. All good? Sure, yep. So you were in a room and you've just got your funding. Uh, what is the first thing you do when, you know, you've, you've, you've got that 200K in your bank? Okay, so cash has hit the bank. Well, I'm assuming so, so... Yeah, okay. Um, I guess I'll answer this in two ways. One is if it hasn't hit the bank yet, you kind of can't count your chickens before they hatch because a lot of people um, will bullshit you. They'll be like, oh, yeah, great, sounds like a great deal. And then, like, when push comes to shove, they won't invest. Um, So once cash does hit the bank, um, it's really exciting. The first thing that I would do is, again, like, start building. So working with the developer and the designer, working on screens and kind of getting like a working prototype in our hands as quickly as possible. Does everything feel really ex- exciting up to that moment? And then at that point, it feels like, you know, I've got to do this now. I would say it gets most exciting at that point. Like you're before then, you're kind of like, is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? It happened. And then... They always say the second raise is the hardest because, yeah, you have to kind of like put your money where your mouth is, right? You have to prove that you're going to do what you said you're going to do. Um, but I kind of like that challenge. <laughs> <laughs> um, so talking about challenges, what was your first major challenge with Natter? Yeah, so kind of goes back to the root problem of outsourcing tech. And when we built the first version of Natter, again, they call it an MVP, we hired this one guy. And um, that contract actually went pretty flawlessly. And then we hired him again to kind of do a second version of it. And about a week into the product, he just said, no, he's not going to do it. And from there, he like wasn't giving us the code back, um, had to actually go to our lawyers, basically get them to you know like send him a really threatening letter and it ended up costing us like not a I don't know maybe like five grand to kind of get this all back and it was just kind of again like a stupid mistake that was easily avoided but again when you're starting a company and you have an app and you don't have a developer in the apps in the app store you're you're pretty worried (laughs) of course and and, um, I guess that took time and as my next question is what do investors actually expect from you? So I'm guessing they want some form of report. And when your developers are gone haywire, I'm sure you can't get your 20% growth that month. Yeah. So I kind of split my um, investors into two groups. There's the guys that I meet every week. So that's kind of like my chairman and my lead investor. Um, and with them, I give them a report in person 
with like, okay, these are kind of the weekly numbers. This is what we've been working on. What do you think of these designs? What do you think of this user flow? Kind of go category by category. And then at the end of the month, I send out um, a push to all the investors Again, going through like kind of each area of the app, what's been good, what's been bad. Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's, is it unusual to have uh, a, a sit down with your investor where you say, what do you think of this? Are you not kind of expected to, to have it all on your shoulders or do they like to play a part in that? Um, mine certainly did. Again, I guess Seb's background is in like design as well. He worked in advertising and even though he's been, you know, CEO of uh, various companies, like he um, ultimately, like, his background's being an art director. So when it came to, like, making your product beautiful, he actually had, like, a massive part in in helping us with Natter. Um, I know for your marketing, you tried, to, you tried to host different techniques. So I was wondering if you could maybe share, you know, from all the money you put in, what were some of the insights with regards to what worked, what didn't, what would you put your money into, what wouldn't you? So Seb told us from day one, don't spend money offline. He's like, it's a waste. And I didn't believe him. So we decided to do a challenge with Oxford and Cambridge. And the whole purpose of the challenge was, like, I guess we positioned it as which school has better chat. And the school that won, a.k.a. got the most downloads, we would then reward them with um, kind of like a natter party in their favorite bar in their city. Um, this didn't necessarily work the best because it cost us about £9 per download. Plus, both schools cheated, funnily enough. We should have known, like, both are quite academic and smart and they kind of rigged the system. Um, so, yeah, I would say anytime you're going to do an event, unless it's, like, really, really well planned out and um, it makes perfect sense, then go that route. Like, for instance, Whitney Wolf kind of did that with Tinder where she got all of the sorority girls on and then went to the fraternities and got all of the frat boys on. So you, was his, uh, you know, his, his philosophy correct? Was your money on print wasted? Uh, it wasn't wasted. It got us our first 2,000 users. However, when we're paying £9 a head there and when we went to kind of Facebook and Instagram ads, we were paying 50p. So the way that we did that is we'd push out 10 ads at once and then we'd watch them for two hours and uh, we'd like set alarms. They were going off like crazy. We'd be checking them, um, seeing which one is the cheapest. And then we'd stop the ones that weren't working and double down on the one or two that kind of were taking off. So just for people that may not be familiar with tech jargon, like cost per acquisition is basically how much does it cost for me to get you onto our product? Correct, yeah. So um, the you know the goal here is... If you could, the lower your cost per acquisition, the more, and if you can create a funnel, I say that in air quotes, which basically means you create a, a way that seems to work where when you put X amount in, you acquire a customer. So the lower that is, if it's 50p, you keep pouring on. Um, it's like, how much are you paying for somebody to come into your store, right? And if, if we know that for 50p, we can get you into the app. And over the, your lifetime value or your lifetime on the app, you may spend five. Well, then that's okay. We're happy to spend uh, 50p to get you on, knowing that the, your value to us is more. Which is, this is where tech, for me, is 
such an interesting space because it, there is no bullshit. Whereas in a lot of industries, you, there's a lot of niceties around, uh, you know, trying to get to the point around people's money. The whole industry is kind of predicated on we need to get somebody in. What's their what's their worth? They are to some degree a number, and then obviously your brand and your culture kind of comes next, and and that is my next question so did Nata have a culture did it have a brand like yeah um I would be honest in saying this like that's definitely one area where we failed we were much more like metrics driven and our team operated more like a machine where we were working like ridiculous hours and it was all about like moving that needle and um again doing this the second time around I think I massively missed the mark on how important it is to like provide it's almost like strategy within your team to make people want to work for you and make people want to come to work opposed to like for instance um, the developer that we had in-house like this was just a job for him right and for Laura and I it was our life but for him he didn't have the same incentive we did and yeah like we should have focused a lot more on that um, I think you know, from the few times I interacted with you during that time, it it was a it was an extension of you, and you to some degree are like a machine. And it, it, it you know you're yeah. a very very hard worker. <laughs> you are very analytical. You're methodic, um, and you know. So I guess, like you say, in terms of culture, I think the app itself had a very strong tone of voice and probably was attractive to people externally. But you feel like you struggled internally to create the same same thing. Yeah, yeah. Like to be fair, I was happy with yeah the branding and the look and feel of the product. But um, I guess like I've read this document. It's called the Principles. I think the guy's name is Ray Dalio, and it's all about like hiring people for ability over skill and people who share your values. As like if you can get in sync with your team, like there's nothing more valuable than that. Um, so again, with the people that I've hired this time around, it just already feels so much better. So I know throughout your journey, it wasn't always a, a smooth ride with your co-founder. And, yeah. um, you know, what's what are some of the insights there? How did that relationship break down? What were some of you feel uh, some of her weaknesses slash what do you feel you did wrong? Yeah, um, ultimately, I feel that I made a mistake choosing my co-founder. And I don't mean that to sound harsh on Laura, but it was like the easy thing to do. I didn't look at anybody else. It was like, hey, like, do you want to build this company with me? Sure. Like, <laughs> that was it. Um, we actually worked flawlessly in advertising. Um, we've never been in a single argument ever working in advertising. When we switched to doing the company, um, I just don't think like there's so much stress and so many emotions involved. It's like a roller coaster ride. You have super high highs and super low lows. And um, anyway, I just don't think that um, she had some like personal things going on where she couldn't really cope with the roller coaster. And yeah, one day she just never came back. Um, there's a little bit of lack of closure on that, but hey, um, again, I spoke to her dad and she's doing fine, so I'm happy about that. But yeah, for me, I guess um, in the beginning, I would say I lacked like empathy because I genuinely had no idea what was going on. 
And then as time went on, um, I understood a bit more like, okay, she's dealing with this, that, the other. And when you're not dealing with, you know, um, certain things, it's really hard to understand. However, I would say on the reverse of that, she lacked empathy in leaving me to carry all the way to the company, assuming that I was going to be okay. I think uh, when you have a complete meltdown yourself, for example, I'm not sure if that's the case, but, you know, I don't know that um, you make any rational decisions in that time. Yeah, exactly. So, again, like, there there are no hard feelings and... um, it kind of it's one of those things where it is what it is and there's nothing more you can do about it and uh so for your next company it's be if you end up having a co-founder at all it's be very specific as to what they can bring to the table and who they are and yeah i actually have two co-founders for the new one um and yeah i'm comfortable with them <laughs> so looking back at nata i guess the big question is where were you naive what are you going to take forward into the next one that's that's completely different and where you feel you're not going to make the same mistakes um okay let's try to break this down into sections so areas i was naive or well, funnily enough the biggest things that bit me in the butt were from the people that were actually closest to me weirdly enough so I was really naive, like I said, with just kind of picking a co-founder, um, picking my creative partner as my co-founder. And then the company that we outsourced the tech from was actually from a really good entrepreneur friend of mine. And again, we had to bring our lawyers in and sue them to get that code back. And another recommendation for um, like online marketing It was basically where um, you hire this company and they get a bunch of influencers to post a bunch of stuff about Natter. And they basically said they do it for this cost per install. And again, we had to, like, that didn't go good. So funnily enough, I felt like when I did my research and picked things, like I kind of dotted my I's and crossed my T's. And I trusted people a little bit too much based off their references. So going around this time, I think I'm just going to kind of do things twice over if I have to and make sure I'm comfortable um, committing to anything before going down that road again. So with the influencer marketing, which is quite uh, prevalent nowadays, it, it's a you were going to companies that were like, you know, they'll give us this much, wield this much influence and they just weren't delivering. Um, yeah, so we signed a contract basically saying that I won't pay more than 30p per install because I was getting them for 50. So I'm like, this has to be cheaper than what I'm getting it for. And then... They basically tried to argue that that was under the assumptions category in the contract. So I had to go back through my email chains and prove that, like, I actually had to write in bold points saying, like, no, this is what I agree. And it came down to um, they did refund me, but it was like a nightmare. Okay, so were you just kind of hoping that they would post more until you got those until you got those numbers? No, I just wanted my money back because they. They didn't stick to, like, uh, again, like we talked about, Natter did have, like, a tone of voice and a feel to the product, and they were posting stuff that was, like, derogatory, and, like, I wasn't happy having that go out for Natter. So it's like, they weren't even listening to anything I said. I basically just said, refund me, and they were like, no. It's very (laughs) difficult with online, isn't it? Because it's not like a physical product or anything. It's just like, you know, I want you to give me back my money for that thing, that service, which... Yeah, exactly. Which you've kind of provided, but completely <laughs> fucked up. So. Yeah. Um, hard question, but when did you know Nata was over? Uh, well, 
I genuinely still believe in the concept. Um, I think it's something that does need to be solved, and there's definitely like a market for it. But it reached a point where it started affecting me personally, and I wasn't happy doing it anymore. And I gave it like 110% the entire time. But at this point, like we were slowly running out of money. Um, after Laura stopped showing up for work, that derailed um, the funding process. We lost a large amount of cash. And then from there, um, a developer handed in his notice. And from there, it was just like death by a thousand cuts. So I stay, stuck around a year after Laura left. And it literally was just like, this isn't fun anymore. Like, this is kind of destroying me. And I don't want to like sacrifice my happiness um, so- for this product. Coming at it from the investor perspective, probably the last thing they give a... Sh- well, I'm sure they care <laughs> about your happiness to some degree, but when you're saying, you know, I don't want to do this anymore because it's not making me happy and they've put hundreds of thousands of pounds into you or whatever, however much it was, um, you know, obviously there's probably going to be some tough conversations around that time. Yeah, um, to be fair, at this point, we even raised, like when Laura left, we still raised like a quick... We were supposed to do like a... I think we were going to do 800,000 and then we had 300,000 confirmed. We lost that because Laura left. And then I just quickly threw up a Cedars campaign. Cedars is this site online. It's like a crowdfunding site. And um, we raised like a quick 110 grand. And that was to kind of like buy us time to figure out like how we're going to kind of raise more. And I don't feel personally that the investors could be that upset with me because again, Venrec said that they were coming back in and then... Well, you, you mean the Cedars investors? Um, no, no. Venrex separately said that they were going to come back in. And it wasn't like I was the only one checking out. It almost felt like everybody else has already checked out. And I was just the last one doing it. So for, for, for again, flipping the tides here. So I'm someone on Cedars looking at your startup, which I've watched your campaign. Yeah, they're and, probably pissed. And it was, <laughs> and it was, you know, it was convincing. And behind mm. the scenes, shit's hit the fan. Is that an accurate description? Yeah, but I mean, everything was accurate at the time, even though, like, Laura was still a part of the company, you know, like, I'm not obviously going to broadcast, you know, like, the chaos going on. Um, and I think that can be true of lots of companies, right? Like, behind the scenes, there's lots going on and all seems rosy. Yeah, I mean... You always put your best side forward, especially when you're trying to save something. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, to say, like, I do, I guess, like, all of my investors did care about me personally. Like, that was the nice thing about them. Um, they were the ones, you know, telling me, you know, take some time off. You know, how are you doing? Like, before we talk about anything, we, you know, talked about our personal lives. Um, I would grab lunches and dinners with them. But with the Cedars campaign, yeah, like, there's a bunch of people that I genuinely don't know. And... You have to provide like an update a month to them. And I think uh, maybe it did catch them off guard. However, with Cedars, they warn you, you know, left, right and center that, you know, your capital's at risk. So it's part of the game. It's part of the game. Um, so if it's OK with you, would you uh, maybe talk about your new product? You've already mentioned it yeah. very slightly. Uh, obviously, it's in very early days. Things are likely to change, but just for the audience explain what it is you're working on next 
Yeah, funnily enough, the same... It happened again when I went back to Canada. And the concept was born when I was going to the gym one day and my gym card gets me into three different locations. And after I left, I got a few messages from my friends saying that they were at Glen Allen Recreational Center and I was at Millennium Place Recreational Center. And I just had this thought like, oh man, like that would have been nice to know beforehand. And... Um, over the course of the weekend, the same thing happened when we were going out. I would be at this place called The Pint, and then people would tell me that they were at Hudson's, which is literally across the street. So we came up with this concept, um, and the idea is called Loop. Um, and Loop allows you to kind of see who's there before you arrive. So you're able to like visualize like your WhatsApp friends on a map. And um, the beauty of it and what we're doing differently that nobody has ever done before is we're creating, it's going to sound really techy, but we're creating um, geofences. So it's basically like a barrier outside of, like an invisible barrier outside of every social place. And every time you walk into, you know, a bar, a restaurant, uh, a gym, um, a park, once you hit one of these geofences, it automatically checks you in and kind of pings who's ever around you to let you know, like, you're out and about. So the whole point of the app is to help people to kind of um, connect effortlessly. Amazing. Good elevator yeah. pitch already. It's only going to get better. <laughs> this is the good thing about it. Yeah. Um, so for people who want to kind of keep in the... Keep, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> oh, you're going to I was I, the I, pun. I didn't mean to. I genuinely didn't mean to. Did you mean to when you did the pun? <laughs> it just kind of slips out, it right? It does. For people who want to stay in the loop with your product, Loop, um, where can they go to kind of... Have you got a mailing list or, or a website or an email or something? I don't know. Yeah, currently you, they could email me. Um, website's not up yet, so it's just mel at loopsocial.co. Not dot .com, dot .co. Got it. All right, so email mail. She'll add you to any forthcoming updates. And before we end and I ask you your final question, can we just uh, go f through a few quick-fire questions? Yep, let's do it. So, um, VCs people should check out. Depends what stage of the company you're at, but some good ones would be Venrex, uh, Kima Ventures... Um, Play for Capital, Octopus Ventures, and Excel Partners. Any particular VC, uh, uh, any particular individuals that they should be looking at online? Um, You've name dropped a few actually throughout the course of the interview, so yeah, I guess individuals opposed to VCs like again like Richard Fern I think is one of the smartest guys in the industry to date um, him and Jeremy Yap are probably the two most active uh, European angel investors otherwise yeah um, Tom from Venrex there's Saul who actually I really like from Local Globe um, and there's a guy named Russell Buckley he's actually from Kindred so I should have put Kindred in there. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, we got it. Um, so best resources you found for, for helping you to uh, grow your startup? Yeah, so my resource is actually, you probably know it, The Noun Project. Yeah. Okay, I love it. This was new to me before starting a company, but I love it and I use it all the time. But besides that, um, it was literally my network and kind of when you meet somebody, you almost want to double that and meet somebody else and 
kind of like grow the branches like that. But the Noun Project... Which, for people who don't know, is a, a website for getting icons. Yeah, I know. It's Beautifully sh- <laughs> designed icons. <laughs> Would take them and like, tweak them a bit, you know. But yeah, I've used it a lot. I really like it. Uh, any recommendations for uh, read uh, just good books and things yes. people should read? Yes. Um, so I think I've named a few already. The Originals by Adam Grant. Um, the Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Um, Will It Fly by Pat Flynn. Um, what I really like about that book is it doesn't just kind of talk about if the idea is going to work, but if the idea will work with you doing it and if it kind of aligns with like your values. And then ones for more leisure, they're all still kind of like based around behavior economics, but um, Thinking Fast and Slow is a good one and How to Win Friends and Influence People. Dale Carnegie classic. Um, yeah, I, I'm actually going to read it again. <laughs> An event that you think people should go to? Um, I would say out of all the events, um, it's expensive, but it's probably the best, TechCrunch. Um, my reason being is it gives you the momentum and you can carry that momentum for like a few months after going. I went to the one in New York and I would say it just really fired me up about the whole process. Um, and you're around like, amazing people. Perfect. So before I ask you the final question, any asks for the audience? Um, not overly, but I guess for those who are contemplating starting a company, um, I would say that if you were to weigh out what you have to lose and what you have to gain, what you have to gain far exceeds what you'd ever have to lose doing it. Yeah, just to talk into that a little bit, people sometimes ask me, because I have a lot of side projects on the go and I'm constantly trying to get out of employment as much as I'm in it. And when people say, do you not think that you know, you're sacrificing? I always say, well, how many people who are out of empl- no, that are in employment are doing half of the stuff that you do outside of it? So in your circumstance, um, you, know, you may have taken a lesser salary for those couple of years, but if I, was the, if I owned a company... Um, how, if you don't mind me asking, can I ask how old you are now? 26. 26. So how many 26-year-olds have as much knowledge about building a company and, and online marketing and all of this kind of stuff as you do? They're very, very few and far between. So you never lose out by going and pursuing your dreams. So, yeah, I really agree with you on that point. Um, as I mentioned before, free giveaway. So either if you go to Mel's interview there'll be a download link there where you can actually see a pitch deck for yourself so if you're considering doing it which I think you should then uh, there'll be something there and then final question for you Mel if you could give the world one piece of advice to live a better and more meaningful life what would it be? Yeah so I would say that it kind of I guess goes hand in hand with that point that I just made above Um, it'd say the magic happens outside of your comfort zone Lovely. Send it there. Thank you so much, Mel. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share. I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me mailing list. If you enjoyed the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting. They're the tech heads that make this show possible. 
The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>